Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in African Studies. My name is Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, one of the hosts for this channel. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Jeffrey Alman about his book, Living with Nkrumanism, Nation, State, and Pan-Africanism in Ghana, published in 2017 by Ohio University Press as, far, as part of their new African history series. Dr. Alman is an assistant professor of history at Smith College. He specializes in African political, social, and cultural history. Dr. Allman, welcome to the podcast. Right. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you could uh, just begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. <clears throat> I'm from um, central Nebraska, um, where I grew up and I went to, um, I did my undergraduate at the University of Nebraska, um, where I studied um, history um, with minors in philosophy and political science. Um, and it's at the University of Nebraska where I became interested in um African history by working with um, two historians there, primarily um, Walter Rucker, um, who's now at Rutgers University, and James Lesur, who's um, uh, still at the University of Nebraska chairing the history department. Um, and it's through them that I became really interested in African history and primarily the history of decolonization. And how did you come to uh, write uh, about Nkrumah in Living with Nkrumahism? Again, this, the project began in, uh, I guess, its broadest form um, at the University of Nebraska while working with um, um, Professors Lesur and Rucker, um, who well, they introduced me to the study of um, decolonization and primarily the intellectual history of decolonization as I began um, writing a thesis on um, sort of comparing the intellectual lives of um, Nkrumah, Franz Fanon, and W.B. Du Bois. Um, and it's sort of through their introduction of um, Nkrumah to me that I began interest became interested in sort of how he negotiated like, his ideas of African unity within sort of the changing context of decolonization um, uh, or the changing world that um, the post um, World War II era that sort of culminated with um, Ghana's decolonization. Um, and I just continued with this um, at the university of Illinois, where I did my graduate degree, um, initially trying to um, imagine a project that could combine uh, my interest with, with sort of all three of these figures, um, but primarily Fanon and Nkrumah. Um, and I originally imagined, um, and what ultimately turned out to be a failed dissertation project, initial fail, dis- failed dissertation project, um, looking at the ways, or looking at sort of these groups of um, Ghanaians who became particularly interested in um, the Algerian revolution um, and sort of um, Algerian decolonization. Um, and I imagine this as a project sort of the transcend um, the way that um, the Sahara divides um, histories, uh, African histories in many ways, um, primarily looking at sort of the transnational connections that um, and networks that develops between Algeria and in um, and Ghana and Nkrumah's Ghana. Um, that project didn't pan out, and so what I ended up doing um, is trying to figure out how um, um, <clears throat> one why that didn't work out, which has very sort of strong connections to sort of the history of um, the Ghanaian archive, um, the sort of politics of archiving across empires. Um, and then um, I was sort of in Ghana trying to figure out what to do next and became particularly interested in sort of um, these stories that um, people kept telling about how, um, how life was under Nkrumah, um, which in many ways um, conflicted with sort of this overarching narrative that you um, get when you read histories of um, uh, sort of the Nkrumah years. Um, 
in Ghana in the 1950s and 1960s, and primarily like the political science um, research that took place between the 50s and the 70s that sort of emphasized like um, narratives that Ghanaians weren't overly interested in um, Nkrumah's thoughts. So they didn't, um, um, they they just sort of coped with it or they rejected it. Um, And um, what I found was people were actively engaging it and I became interested in how they were engaging it and in what ways and in what places. Um, so that sort of emerged as my um, dissertation, initially a dissertation topic, and that um, sort of grew into this book. I, I was very interested in in how you um, you know you talk about the the archive, uh, the the sort of the Ghanaian archive, and and the um, sort of like that interface between the colonial archive and then the sort of like the transition into the post colonial archive. And how much that sort of determined both the structure and the questions uh, that you addressed in the book, and how in some instances you find it, you found it very limiting, but at the same time, um, you know, it, it gave you opportunities. Um, so, can you talk a, l- a little bit about as, as, as you're going through this, uh, through the process of how you're going to structure the book and uh, how how had this happened? You know, how how the the nature of the archive itself led to the particular structure that you chose? Yeah, just in general, like when you're thinking about um, what decolonization means um, in terms of archives, um, decolonization sort of in its most f- like fundamental definition is sort of an end of, an end of colonial rule, which signifies an end to, um, or a shift between sort of government controls. And when we're thinking about um, archives, um, particular um, in government archives, there's a transition taking place between who's, um, who's administering the archive, who's um, deciding what gets collected and what doesn't get collected, um, where things are going. Um, and so what this meant for, um, <clears throat> for Ghana or previously sort of the Gold Coast was um, sort of in the colonial era, you had an archive um, within within the Gold Coast itself that collected a, a vast array and an incredibly rich array of um, documents um, detailing um, sort of the operations of the colonial state, um, petitions from Gold Coasters to the state, um, arguing for um, a whole array of things, challenging um, governmental, um, like land policies, maybe cases, um, agriculture, um, <clears throat> Um, maybe petitioning for pay raises for civil service, sort of these types of things. Um, um, so that's taking place within the colony itself, but sort of more broadly, you also have a sort of a larger um, archival umbrella that's um, taking pl- that's um, taking place um, in London, sort of collecting a whole array of documents from sort of throughout the empire, sort of throughout Africa um, and then the empire more broadly that sort of creates and sort of sustains the ability to sort of look at different types of networks um, that, that the empire itself is um, in many ways unwittingly building and maintaining. Um, In some cases that's, um, that's broken up um, by decolonization. You, um, particularly as new nation states um, come into being and they become and they establish their own archival traditions. Um, these networks aren't as clearly visible um, in the archives, or at least not in the same way. Um, and so you're coping with that a bit in the, Ghana- in the Ghanaian situation. Um, and then more broadly, um, as the Ghanaian government encounters a, a variety of challenges to uh, uh, sort of within self-rule, um, economic um, challenges, political challenges, um, archiving in many cases sort of falls by the wayside. Um, and and so within the Ghanaian archive, by the time you get past uh, around 1960, 1961-ish, um, the archive becomes much more um, sporadically maintained. Um, and so you don't have the same sort of um, 
rich archival narrative or um, in the in the 60s onwards as you do from the colonial period. Um, and so you're forced into um, into making do with a much more an archive with many more holes in it. Um, and then it becomes exacerbated primarily after Nkrumah is overthrown um, when in many cases it's it appears that the archive was ransacked by um, the um, by the new military government and the materials that we have um, are <clears throat> what we know that they're just a tiny portion of what existed prior to the 1966 coup. Yeah, I know that I, I would imagine that um you know, it's one of those situations in which you kind of have a sense of what you could have and you don't. So it's, uh, as a a writer, I imagine you're constantly thinking about, uh, you're identifying the gaps and then figuring out where to fill those gaps. And and I imagine that's also what took you to these other different archives uh, outside of the UK to try to, uh, outside of the, you know, of Ghana and the United Kingdom. So, So where you could find possibly some, some, some means to, to, to get to those voices that could fill those, uh, the gaps that you were identifying as you were researching. Yeah, one of the things that I try to tell my students, to, um, because here at Smith College, they have this amazing resource, the Sophia Smith Collection on U.S. History, which is one of the richest um, U.S. women's history collections um, in the world. Um, and so they have this idea of an archive um, that um, sort of this beautiful space where they go and work at work in and everything sort of seems at their fingertips and then I come I show them pictures of the Ghanaian archive and and um, and also um, or primarily the the Padmore um, research libraries um, archival collections um, and then I also reiterate to them that when we're talking about Ghanaian history in Ghana in the 1960s like this is the iconic um, a post-colonial African state where you have people um, throughout the world looking to Accra um, to understand um, the direction of not only Africa, but um, the decolonizing world as a whole. So it's this massively iconic place within the international imagination in the 1960s. Um, and when we think about what the archive has today um, for this period, it's a couple thousand um um, file folders um, within the National Archive itself to to work with um, in order to um, try to reconstruct this history. And then so they compare that to what they see sort of um, right next to them in the, um, in the library. Yeah. Well, that's a good lesson for them. <laughs> um, well, let's, let's get into the book. Um, you start the book by setting... Um, Somehow, not, not just the, the ideological scene, you know, so the world of Kwame Nkrumah, uh, what are the, and, and you mentioned, uh, this is a world that uh, sort of comes together in a, from many different places and in a multifaceted and sort of multilayered way. So can you give us just a quick, uh, a brief sort of uh, summary of how uh, the thinking of Kwame, uh, the, the thinking of Kwame Nkrumah came to be uh, as you detailed it in this, cha- in this chapter? Yeah, so what I try to do in, sort of in this first chapter of the book is to understand um, sort of the broader context that he that he lived in that was uh, and that was likely influencing his decision making um, later in life, but really just sort of shaping um, the way that he as well as um, his contemporaries um, sort of imagined the world. Um, and I do so by sort of situ- initially situating him. Um, who was born in 1909, sort of uh, at the, he was born sort of in this era that um, <clears throat> was sort of many ways the, um, not, not sort of the formal beginnings of colonial rule, but the beginnings of when colonial rule sort of became sort of consolidated um, in people's minds. Um, and so we have this sort of idea of colonialism that um, I think in many ways he would, if he would um, be sympathetic to where the history of colonialism, as it's often told or reflected on, is something that um, seems like a very long period in African history. Um, 
And there are specific reasons why it seems that way, even though um, really um, the colonial rule, former colonial rule on the Gold Coast was approximately 40 years, 40 years old by the time he was born. Um, and it's the, and there's the reasons for this are connections to, um, to the slave trade, sort of the ways that you have um, histories of the slave trade blend into histories of colonial rule and sort of popular narratives. Um, and then also on top of that, um, the way this is sort of propagated um, by um, colonial thinkers um, as well as European thinkers themselves and cultivating like this idea of um, Africa as being um, backward and sort of needing colonization um, and needing colonization as a way to, um, to end the slave trade um, within Africa, well, um, the transatlantic slave trade, then slave trade within Africa itself. And so you have this narrative of colonialism that um, makes colonialism appear like it's this longer phenomenon um, when it is actually something that um, um, was really being consolidated by the time he was born. And so what I <clears throat> what I see with um, Nkrumah sort of thinking and sort of what he's reacting to um, later in his um, um, early life is um, sort of the blending of sort of these narratives where you have um, where you have him and others um, <clears throat> sort of reacting to the um, to the sort of changing political environment um, <clears throat> and sort of reacting against sort of the liberal and progressive narrative that sort of comes out of colonial rule um, and sort of showing that what sort of gets propagated as colonialism being this um, sort of um, process, supposedly this process of um, betterment um, for Africans, this sort of civilization process, you have sort of these pushbacks um, showing it as an economic process designed to, um, to indebt Africa um, <clears throat> primarily. And so what I s try to do in the chapter is sort of situate Nkrumah as part of, sort of this whole range of um, thinkers at the time who are challenging sort of this progressive narrative of colonialism and sort of emphasizing that um, um, colonial rule is sort of this, uh, it's a mechanism to sort of tie Europe or tie Africa to, to Europe and to primarily sort of European capitalism. Um, so Nkrumah, as I see it in this chapter, is part of uh, sort of a cohort of people that include um, Nehru in India, um, um, uh, Padmore in um, the Caribbean in the UK, um, and sort of this whole group of people who are really sort of challenging um, sort of this liberal narrative of colonial rule that um, sort of by the end of the chapter um, – sort of transitions to what um, sort of previously was um, calls for colonial reform to demands for um, uh, immediate self-rule. One thing that I find very interesting um, about this chapter in particular, uh, but I think that that comes, I mean, through the book, is uh, sort of like the question of the engagement of uh, Nkrumah with, uh, uh, with sort of like the intellectual history of in the Gold Coast. Uh, I mean, like you said, he he talks a lot about. I mean, he he engages uh, with the particular group of intellectuals um, uh, who have sort of um, uh, debated or or discussed, you know, Kaseli Hayford. Um, and you know Kubinaseki and, and 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 people like this, who to some extent have engaged with um, you know Pan Africanism or have have uh, have had this awareness you know of of uh, Africa as a continent and liberation etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But that at the same time have like this foot in this other sort of historical tradition, like what what generally it's called like the cultural nationalists mm -hmm. uh, of the Gold Coast. And and I've always been kind of um, 
amazed at the uh, sort of like at the at the cut you know it's like it's like Nkrumah really does not want to see back it's like it, I've always been intrigued by this um, relationship of Nkrumah with the history of the Gold Coast that goes beyond colonialism um, I was wondering if, if you have thoughts about that yeah I mean what he's doing so he's doing a couple of different things sort of at this time and the way I try to set this up is by reading um, uh, but reading through his Independence Day, um, sort of the famous um, line from his speech where he declares sort of the independence of Ghana is uh, meaningless without the, um, the independence of the rest of the continent, sort of to paraphrase it. Um, and that's often just sort of looked at as sort of a call for um, uh, African unity itself, but I see it as being read on sort of multiple historical levels. Sort of one level is um, connecting back to the Pan-Africanism of the um, sort of the Du Boisian Pan-African tradition of the sort of post-World War II era up to about 1930. Um, um, and then sort of reinvigorating itself with the Manchester Pan-African Conference in 1945. Um, which is often sort of portrayed as sort of this largely diasporic Pan-African tradition, um, primarily in the Du Bois eras um, or the Du Bois years. Um, so he's, so I see this, he's connecting on one level that sort of uh, history of Pan-Africanism through this phrase. Um, and then in addition, like you talked about sort of the, the Gold Coast um, um, cultural nationalist tradition, anti-colonial tradition, um, that in many ways is sort of this pan-West Africanism um, of the early 20th century. And I think he's very much, um, like you said, sort of hearkening back to that um, and combining that within these within these statements. Um, and then, um, as I tried to take it earlier, um, on another level, he's connecting it to sort of this international anti-colonialism that develops um, in the early 20th century and trying to connect um, um, Ghana's early 20th century history to that um, sort of global history as well. Yeah, no, it is, it is, uh, this is a, an interesting um, sort of like genealogy of, of, of how his thought starts to crystallize. And, and I found it also very uh, uh, illuminating how you use uh, the term uh, anti radical anti-colonialism, you know, the, uh, to characterize uh, his way of thinking or, or what comes out of, of that, uh, as opposed to uh, what what could be much more like simplistically look at nationalism. I, I actually was interested in how little use you have for the word nationalism throughout the book, and and how the tendency is, is to use much more the notion of either decolonization or anti-colonialism, which seems much more accurate. Uh, was that deliberate or am I imagining this? I mean, I think it's um, connected to the challenges that I had in defining um, incrumanism itself and what uh, incrumanism and then under that sort of nationalism and pan-Africanism and sort of socialism and anti sort of how they all weave together and so um what i found with sort of the the term nationalism um is it it carries so much baggage i guess um that it's it's not it's very difficult to use um without um it's very difficult to use um without that baggage. And so it's, um, so I found it much easier to, um, and much more useful and, and, um, <clears throat> important uh, to use terms like, um, Pan-Africanism or, um, or incrumanism itself, um, sort of to specify the sort of the changing, um, the changing sort of political environment um, and sort of the environment of sort of political ideals at the time. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, <clears throat> I think it was kind of deliberate, but I think it's also sort of me reflecting on it sort of after writing the book. 
Yeah, that's, um, well, I mean, even if was, I, I mean, your answer in terms of like, it, it sort of reflects exactly how, uh, how one needs to be thoughtful about those terms, you know, in terms of what they carry with them and in terms of how well or not did they um, communicate what we're trying to communicate. Um, so moving on into the, the next couple of chapters, um, you, you talk about in, in your second chapter about uh, basically the, the, that period of negotiation, like the 50s when, when uh, Nkrumah is sort of negotiating with the British, um, sort of the terms of independence and, and how this transition is going to work. Uh, and, and how is this is the period where you see sort of like the vision of Nkrumah uh, actually sort of taking shape. Uh, what is his vision? And, and the other part that I wanted you to sort of touch upon as you talk about this chapter is that, um, so how, you know, you're very, uh, you're very uh, clear that one of the things that you want to do in the book is to historicize this process, you know, not, not to sort of define Krumaism uh, as it was in the 50s and then just see how, you know, leave it there and then follow it through, but like how to show how it evolved in response to very specific conditions. So, um, so this is the beginning of the story. Uh, so how do you see it taking shape in response to what conditions uh, in this particular, you know, in, in this, in this early period? Yes. Yeah, so what I see, um, how I see it taking shape is in terms of um, you have Nkrumah's first government coming into power and, um, following uh, in 1951, um, following a general election, um, and sort of over the course of from 1951 to 1957, when Ghana becomes an independent, you have this um, challenge for Nkrumah and his and his party, the Convention People's Party, to sort of um, solidify their position as a government um, in an era when they aren't independent or the country isn't independent and they do have sort of these British officials sort of looking over their shoulder continuously um, throughout the period. Um, um, so they're trying to establish themselves as a, as a radical yet respectable government in many ways. Um, and they're trying to showcase um, Ghana for um, sort of for an international audience. And you do have sort of this is sort of the beginnings of the period where you have people sort of coming into um, the then Gold Coast and trying to sort of make sense of it. So most famously, like um, Richard Wright is um, um, traveling throughout um, sort of parts of the Gold Coast Um in the early fifties and sort of narrating um, what he sees going on with sort of this, what he imagines should be going on. Um, and um, in his book comes out, I want to say in 1954, um, if I remember correctly, um, which doesn't necessarily paint the most romantic picture of Ghana um, or the Gold Coast at the time and sort of um, Nkrumah and the convention people's parties. So you have them negotiating that aspect of it. And then within um, sort of Gold Coast politics itself, you have groups who are um, arguing for sort of their own um, sort of political positions and sort of understandings of um, who and what they belong to um, that conflicts with sort of the CPP's um, vision of a potential sort of unified um, Ghana or unified nation. And so they're, they're uh, projecting their own sort of ideas of nation that in many ways conflict with the CPP at the, at the time. Um, and the way that the CPP tries to make sense of it is by essentially delegitimizing these, um, these alternative movements or these alternative um nationalism for what it's worth um and going um all in on this idea of a unified ghana um and in doing so beginning sort of this process of closing um sort of arenas for um political debate or the ways in which um sort of 
respectable um, political debate could take place and sort of closing those off. And this becomes sort of, at least what I argue, the initial um, um, stages of, um, of sort of creating uh, a particular sort of orthodoxy of incrumanism that the state adheres, tries to adhere to. Um, it changes over time, as, as you mentioned, in many, in many ways, but this is sort of... Is during this period, so the first moment that the state begins to sort of um, articulate ideas of incrumism, uh, sort of incrumist thought, that um, that they begin to try to change into an orthodoxy. And and then uh, in the next couple of chapters, you know, three and four, where you talk about um, you know the creation or the sort of the constitution of. Uh, what is a Ghanaian citizen, you know, the debate about what constitutes a Ghanaian citizen, uh, or like you said, more, more largely a post-colonial citizen. And then in chapter four, when you talk about the importance of work, you know, and workers, um, you basically see the, the, the implementation of that, um, of that vision, you know, and how that vision starts to sort of historically take shape in the forms of this, uh, all these different projects. Can you tell us a little bit about this, about the youth projects and then sort of like the policy towards workers? Yeah. So, um, yeah, those chapters, I think you're right, should be sort of read together because they're very much sort of speaking to each other. Um, and what the, <clears throat> so the Nkrumah government was particularly interested in, um, and youth as youth and workers, um, because um, much like Fanon and Kruma sort of saw decolonization as sort of this process of reinvention, right? So Fanon argues um, that decolonization is, sort of, is a veritable creation of new men, I think is the quote. Um, and Nkrumah wasn't much far, or wasn't far off from that and sort of how he understood what the process of decolonization was supposed to do. It wasn't supposed to be sort of this transfer of power um, or even a sort of a transfer of power that ultimately leads in sort of um, a radical African unity that um, <clears throat> gets, uh, um, that he becomes um, particularly famous for arguing Rather, he saw decolonization as a process that was supposed to um, transform the individual and then transform society um, um, sort of writ large. Um, and youth played into that in very particular ways because um, the youth were in many ways seen as a blank slate. Um, if, um, if you could get to the youth and sort of teach them sort of how to be proper, uh, um, proper citizens, proper socialists, um, proper activists for, um, for the uh, sort of political cause of the state, you were, you were able to imagine a, <clears throat> a sort of a path forward that sort of creates a foundation that will, um, that will adhere to the values and sort of promote the values of the state, and that won't be um, um, corrupted by sort of pre-existing um, <clears throat> historical um, linkages, whether it's to what they sort of saw as um, the they termed it sort of what they termed as tribalism but was sort of connections to sort of ethnic forms of belonging um um or um um class connection sort of class connections um or um sort of familial bond they'd be able to be separated from this and sort of their connections would be to the state and so what the government um, did quite early on what they were discussing um, even before independence was um, ways in which to inculcate um, Ghana's young people and these um, <clears throat> in these values of the state and they did so th um, by creating um, a handful of very prominent state institutions um, the most prominent ones would be the Ghana Young Pioneers um, and the Builders Brigade, which was later renamed the Workers Brigade. The Workers Brigade, um, and in these institutions, um, 
Afghan children and young men and young women were um, taught um, that <clears throat> they were to be disciplined, that they were to be ordered. They were um, <clears throat> they were taught sort of the values of the state. They were taught to they were taught um, what socialism was, what socialism. Uh, why it was important, how it was supposed to disrupt the sort of the capitalist system and ultimately lib- um, liberate them, liberate the country, and liberate Africa sort of from the vestiges of colonial rule. Um, <clears throat> and similarly, in terms of workers, um, the government initially saw, or the CPP initially saw them as a... Um, sort of a, a built-in um, base of support. Um, it didn't always pan out for the CPP, um, but they quite early on, they tried to mobilize the workers for their cause and then to um, essentially stage a coup of the um, Ghanaian workers' movement and try to, and try to, control, to control the movement. Um, and then... Um, in addition to that, um, emphasize um, to the workers an idea of work that uh, was to separate them from viewing work as a, as a means of like, individual accumulation um, and individual sort of wealth generation to one that focused on the productivity of the state itself and sort of trans transforming the way that workers looked at the work that they, they were doing um, and emphasizing um, sort of this idea that as sort of one um, magazine article, I quote states sort of working for the state is working for ourselves. And so, so in both of these instances, whether it's youth or whether it's uh, whether it's workers, um, the CPP um, focused on these groups as a way to sort of view sort of the decolonization process as a process of sort of creating a specific type of citizen that was supposed to sort of lead the country um, forward. Um, and as you move into your last chapter, uh, which was, the, the, I imagine, uh, probably the, one of the most difficult to write, um, you know, uh, negotiation, Krumaism, belonging, uncertainty, and the Pan-African one-party state. Um, here's where you use, I imagine, uh, what made the, more, the most use of interviews, uh, and, uh, and you try to sort of make sense, as you say, of all these different experiences of how people actually experienced uh, all these projects and, and, and this sort of new... Uh, new directives from from the state. Um, I mean, I, you don't have to make sense of the whole thing, but you could could you give us a couple of uh, of stories or a couple of examples of uh, that um, that you think are particularly telling of of basically how diverse uh, the responses and the lived experience uh, the lived experiences of people were under uh, during this period. Yeah. So what I was trying to do in that chapter particularly is, you said, sort of understand the diversity of ways in which people engaged with the state. Um, and one of the things that I encountered in, in writing the book, um, but also talking about it with um, people who were sort of non-specialists, um, was this idea that um, trying to understand sort of African politics and sort of what it was like to live under an African regime that sort of over the course of the early 60s, um, primarily beginning around 1960, uh, 1960, maybe 61-ish, was becoming increasingly authoritarian and for an array of reasons that were both internal and external, um, connected to fears of um, subversion from the outside, as well as assassination attempts on Nkrumah's life. this, this state or this period is becoming increasingly um, becoming increasingly authoritarian and shutting off avenues for active political engagement. And what I've what I noticed when I was talking to people about sort of this period and sort of what it was, um, people who 
um, people like in the United States who sort of have their reflections on like what life must have been like, um, they tended to think that it was um, people were sort of purely closed down and were actively trying to disengage in every way possible from the state or that they were sort of blind, blind adherence to sort of state ideology and, um, or state actions and sort of whether it's, whether they accept it or not, they're sort of going through the motions. Um, and what I found, um, in both, um, the archive and as well as talking to people is that people had an array of reactions to the state. And it's for some people, they, they did try to actively engage, um, engage the state, um, to enhance to enhance their um, um, their way of life, it could be in terms of petitioning for raises for certain civil servants. Um, it could be looking for sort of new forms of belonging, whether it's sort of connections to the party or connecting to this particular um, group, um, whether they're like in the young pioneers and sort of the bonds that were created by being part of sort of this organization that um, where you have sort of a cohort of what were then children sort of coming of age together. Um, they, <clears throat> they could be connecting to the state for various reasons. Um, but what I also noticed is they're often doing it and sort of making these gestures and using the language of incrumism to, um, to promote their particular interests um, and um, at the time um, and connecting to the state. Um, other people um, recognized that there are real challenges to connecting to the state. There were, uh, there were all threats in terms of connecting to the state and this could play out in terms of um, if things didn't go the right way, they or family members could um, could be detained. Um, they could be reported on by others. Um, so there are real challenges and real threats to them by connecting the state. Um, but for some, it was it was worthwhile, um, and others did actively disengage um, from the state as much as possible and um, tried to tried to make a life independent of the state. And so what I was trying to do in the chapter as a whole is sort of show the range of engagement um, and disengagement and um, to <clears throat> sort of articulate as clear as possible the, um, the ways that people sort of made their way through this period of time in Ghanaian history. And it's a period of time that um, it often... Um, gets alighted over um, and many um, studies of sort of Nkrumah's years. It sort of, it's, it uncomfortably fits um, between sort of the triumph of in independence and then, and then the coup. Um, and, um, and, um, and so you, you get a general sort of narrative that, um, that gets created that sort of presents sort of this period of the early 1960s as necessarily leading to the coup. But from the perspective of the people living at the time, um, it, the, the Nkrumah estate was uh, something that seemed like it could be around for at least the foreseeable future. And so there was no, I, there was no idea that a coup was going to happen. And so they were trying, trying to make their way through this period. Um. I was I was um, interested in in, in uh, sort of like the initial project or like the the instinct that you you were following was kind of going against this sort of teleological tendency that we have when when uh, when we think about well I mean in general when we do history uh, but you know it's like we know the end and now so let's just backtrack our way from this and, and figure out how how we ended here almost thinking that we end, that the end was inevitable like you say. Um, and I was wondering if you could um, sort of reflect a little bit about why do you think it's important to go against that tendency? I mean, I, this is something I've thought a lot about in terms of, um, you know, if, if is history here to explain to us how we got to the point where we are right now? 
why do we necessarily want to look at um, at sort of like those avenues that didn't pan out or the things that didn't work out? Um, you know, you know, we have this tension between history as explaining, you know, as it connects to the present, as opposed to history as it was, you know, and uh, and I, I sometimes even with my students, uh, it, the question always is like it, history as it was is important, uh, not not always necessarily for the same reasons, but it is. So, how would you make that argument? I think that I mean what I try to. Um emphasize with my students is that um, <clears throat> like history, at least as I see it, is a way of understanding differing perspectives um, that took place in the past. And then the constraints that people had as they negotiated their way through um, specific contexts. Um, and what I think is particularly important is like to understand and sort of to break away from sort of this so these theological narratives of like what necessarily happened is like when we think about something like decolonization, um, if we sort of go with this narrative of decolonization that sort of begins um, with the end of the Second World War, sort of creation of the United Nations, and and then sort of Indian independence and and then sort of Ghanaian independence, and then sort of all the independence of the year of Africa, and so the creation of this idea of decolonization as a process that sort of to create nation states, we necessarily um, extricate from our histories um, the whole variety of differing ideas and sort of competition competition of ideas and conflicts and sort of processes of imagining more broadly that um, <clears throat> that people um, went that went through and put forward at this time and this could be from people like um, Nkrumah Fanon um, Seiko Tori um, <clears throat> Nasser um, sort of these um so the big name um, <clears throat> heads of states slash um, thinkers um, uh, near as well, sort of it could be sort of how their their ideas and sort of how they're trying to articulate it. But then it could then at the same time you have a whole a whole range of many 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 more people sort of on the ground interpreting that but also articulating their own ideas for and hopes and ambitions for what the uh, what their futures um, are going to look like or can look like um, and they're going through their own sort of processes of imagining that um, that are in conversation and they're challenging those of sort of their political leaders um, um, but this moment for from 1945 to the mid 60s um, is one sort of of sort of pure imagination, but it's an imagination that comes into conflict with um, external processes, whether it's the the Cold War, external conflicts, whether it's the Cold War, um, um, sort of challenges from and sort of continual intervention from former colonial powers, um, they run into sort of this sort of global environment that um, begins to constrain these possibilities. And then within their particular countries, they run into um, sort of local challenges as well, um, such as they articulated in um, the second chapter of the book with the... Um, with the CPP coming into conflict with um, um, an Asante Nationalist Party, um, parties, um, <clears throat> the, the Muslim, Associ um, uh, uh, Muslim Association Party, um, and sort of a, a variety of sort of different um, sort of subnational parties. So they come into conflict with sort of local politics, again, further constrain their possibilities. And so when we're thinking of sort of what um, histories look like and what the possibilities for understanding sort of these specific moments outside of a teleological vision, what we're doing is we're recreating um, the ways and sort of 
um, the ways in which people um, <clears throat> are living through moments, negotiating sort of negotiating moments in um, <clears throat> in rich ways that don't necessarily conform to the world as we have it now, but that are um, that are challenging it. But when we think about sort of these constraints as well, we're understanding um, what was <clears throat> the possibilities that were closed off at the time. Yeah, that was very nicely said. Yep, I'll, I'll borrow it for my students, definitely. <laughs> um, well, um, we're, uh, we're beginning to think that I've taken quite a bit of your time. Um, before we go, could you just let us know uh, what are you working on? you have any projects um, that you're working on right now? What's next for you? So what I'm primarily working right, on right now is I'm writing a book for I.B. Torres's um, Modern History series, uh, which is essentially a history of Ghana from approximately 1850 to the present, that's emphasizing the variety of ways in which um, Ghanaians um, and Gold Coasters and Ghanaians um, imagined various forms of belonging, sort of over this over this long time period. Um, how what types of connections do they make inside and outside of Ghana, and sort of why? Why are those important sort of shaping the way that um, Ghanaians think about what it means to be Ghanaian sort of over the um, over this sort of 150, 170 year period? So that's what I'm primarily working on at the moment. Good. Well, thank you so much uh, for talking to us today. Um, uh, it was uh, very, very illuminating. And thank you so much for making the time. Um, is there anything else you would like to add? to you know your projects or what you would like the people to get uh, out of the book no thank you very much for having me i really appreciate this opportunity well thank you so much have a good afternoon you too bye-bye bye-bye